Hi, welcome back to the Grand Challenges podcast. Today, my colleague Siobhan and I have invited Professor Dame Hazel Gen, Professor in the UCL Faculty of Laws and Executive Director of the Centre for Access to Justice, also at UCL. Hi, Hazel, welcome. Hi. Would you mind giving us a brief overview of research and the work that's being conducted in the centre? Well, the first thing to say is that I'm a slightly unusual kind of legal scholar because my initial qualifications were in social sciences, in sociology, social anthropology, and what was called social administration in those days. And I studied law after I already had a degree in social science. And what that does is to bring you to law with slightly different questions about the law and also with different skills, the skills of a social scientist and the ability to carry out large-scale empirical research. So I would say that my career has been characterised, first of all, by a long history of doing large-scale empirical research. And the questions that I ask about law is not so much what the law is, but what does the law do and how can people use the law in order to protect their positions or to obtain the protections and entitlements that the law provides for them. So I've spent quite a long time researching how the law works in relation to the kinds of social and legal problems that citizens have. As far as the Centre for Access to Justice is concerned, I suppose the background for the setting up of that centre came from a piece of research that I did in the late 1990s called Paths to Justice, which was a large-scale national study, in fact two studies in England and Wales and one in Scotland, so two separate but identical studies done in those two jurisdictions, looking at what kinds of problems people have, which we would call legal in the sense that they are justiciable. There are a wide range of what we would call social problems for which the law provides a remedy. And the question is, not what does the law say, but what do people do? How do they go about solving those problems or disputes? How do they go and get advice? Do they get advice? Do they know what their rights are or what their entitlements are? And those two studies demonstrated that, first of all, relatively high proportion of the population in any one year experience quite a few legal problems. But I think particularly it showed that people on low incomes, people from disadvantaged groups, vulnerable people, disproportionately suffered more of those kinds of problems. And when you ask people about what they do about them, they disproportionately were less able to resolve their problem. The other thing that those studies demonstrated was that, because we asked not only what problems people had and what they did about it, but also what kind of impact those problems Mm. had on people. And we found that very often people would say being involved in a legal problem had created some kind of health problem, some kind of created stress or led to some kind of health problem. But also conversely, people with health problems would disproportionately have legal problems. So it demonstrated the kind of interconnection between law and health, what I call a bi-directional link. So unresolved legal problems may create health problems and health problems may create problems for which the law has a solution. Very often, these problems are raised maybe for the first time in a doctor's surgery because you might go to the doctor because you you can't sleep, you're stressed, yeah. because you've got a problem at work or you've got a problem with your housing or problem somewhere else. And you'll go to the doctor not saying, 
I've got a problem with my housing or I'm worried about what my employer's doing. You say, I'm stressed, I need sleeping pills or I need antidepressants, I've got a problem with my landlord, whatever it is. Of course, GPs recognise this, but they don't necessarily know what to do about it. And this this wasn't a kind of magic finding. I think that other people who'd been doing legal needs studies also understood. People working on the ground also understood the connection between law and health. And the paradigm case is something like, let's say, a child that is repeatedly brought to the doctor with asthma isn't properly helped. And the fact matter is that the underlying problem is that they're living in terrible housing conditions with damp on the walls and infestations. And so when somebody goes to the doctor, you know, do they need antidepressants? Do they need another puffer? Do they need sleeping tablets? Or actually, do they need a lawyer to sort out the problem so that you can get rid of the cause of the cause of the ill health? So through my research, I was very much aware of these kinds of issues. And when I became Dean of the Faculty of Laws, my secret plan in the back of my head, which is I know that deans don't really have power, they only have responsibility, but you do have a bit of power to influence things. When I took over as dean, I did think that it might be possible to set up within the Faculty of Laws at UCL a centre for access to justice that would both teach students about access to justice principles and about why it is that people find it so difficult to access the justice system or to achieve some kind of resolution for justiciable problems, but also to provide a community service. Mm. Now, lots of law schools have what are known as legal clinics, where students will go out and give advice with people helping them. But the design for our Centre for Access to Justice was to be a bit more ambitious than that. And it was First of all, to have students who were trained in the theory of access to justice and understood principles of social justice and an understanding of how the law works in the real world, and then to have the experience of helping people in the community and not only giving them advice, but being able to, say, represent them at a benefits Mm -hmm. tribunal or something with supervision from an appropriate person, a qualified person. So we were doing a bit more than what some clinics do. So the original concept behind the Centre for Access to Justice was a kind of practical response to research that shows how much unmet need there is in society for free legal services. I didn't use the word free before, but we're talking about free legal services because, of course, these are people who can't afford to pay for private legal services. So what kind of results and um, changes have you seen after the centre was set up? So for the people you've helped, but also you talked about students being involved. The centre was very successful. We took on um, a great director, Jackie Kingham, who was a qualified barrister and who managed to develop the service. And we had Shiva Riyahi, who was the manager of the Access to Justice Centre. And we took on a number of other people who could help to run the centre and to support the students who could help to run the activities of the Centre for Access to Justice. And the centre provided a wide range of opportunities for students to get involved in activities of all different kinds. It wasn't just kind of clinic work, but they were getting involved in other kinds of pro bono activities that supported all kinds of things. And all right, so this is the other part of my vision. So initially, (laughs) the centre did not have a physical space 
it was basically rooms in the faculty. Right. And then the students worked with other organisations providing um, advice out in the community. Mm. But my great vision was always that we would have a standalone premises that people could come to that is there to provide advice for the community. That didn't come to quite a while afterwards. So between 2013 and 2016, we ran these activities in partnership with other organisations. And another part of my vision, which is to do with where people first talk about their problems, was to set up what I would call a health justice partnership, what's called in America a medical legal partnership. I knew about sort of multidisciplinary community centres that would have a range of services in them. And I knew about one in Australia called the West Heidelberg Centre, where you would have a health centre that also had free legal services and some other services Mm. connected with it. And so I'd always had in my mind (laughs) that one of the things we could do is not just have the the centre doing the things it was doing, but we maybe could also develop a health justice partnership and to go into partnership, say, with a GP practice. That opportunity came in sort of the end of 2015 when UCL was thinking about moving to Stratford and I went on an expedition with the provost and various other people from population health and other bits of medicine to kind of go and look at the area. I was shown a health centre that originally was used for the athletes. It was a health centre for the athletes in the Olympics, uh, but was now being used for, there was, it had a GP practice and had, I think, some dental practices and some other practices in there. And I went into this fantastic, modern, beautiful building. And one of the senior practitioners at the practice, Professor Martin Marshall, was both a senior member of the practice there and also a professor at UCL in, I think he's in population health. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I talked to Professor Marshall and said, would you be interested in having a free legal service in this building that your GPs could refer patients to. And I talked to him and then I talked to the GPs and we talked about what kinds of legal problems routinely came to them, what kinds of things they would define as possibly being a legal problem or something for which legal services could help. And I said, you know, do you think it would be useful to have this in the building? And they got it straight away. And so the idea was that we would rent rooms in the building and have a clinic and so that patients from the GP practice could be referred by the doctors to us. But also, if patients just walking into the building saw our leaflets or whatever else, they could think, oh, I wonder whether those people could help me. So we would take people on referral, but also people walking into the building. We've got some really good case studies, you know, cases. In fact, the, the thing I mentioned earlier about a child with breathing difficulties is one that sticks in my mind, a baby that was referred to us by the GP where the mother had tried to get herself rehoused. She was in a, uh, she was, um, in social housing that had damp and mice and insect yeah. infestations and the child had skin problems and also had asthma. Uh, the mother had tried to get in rehouse but was unable to do so because it is very difficult. And our team got on the case and they got the local authority to review the case. They reviewed the premises. They decided it was unsuitable and we got her rehoused. Now, that's a classic example of how you can make a real difference These are often people who are desperately in need of just getting the basics for life in place. And being there in the premises 
was actually a really great thing because they didn't have to, these are people very often who've been sent from pillar to post, you know, you'll, so you're referred to one place and then you're referred to somewhere else. And the advantage here is that the GP says, go and see these people downstairs, or you're going to see the GP and you see in the same place that there's somewhere that you can go for advice. It does make a big difference, which is why I think that these kinds of partnerships where you can be co-located, where you can have legal services co-located yeah. with health services, for me, is the ideal way of doing it. Yes, because mm. the law can be incredibly intimidating, okay. both in terms of just the language that is used, but also going into a legal practice can be a huge physical barrier for people. So yes, there's a much better conception and understanding of what a GP's surgery is and that barrier is less for people going in. So it makes That's absolutely sense. right. It's you don't have that barrier. It's a premises that you're reasonably familiar with. The person who's saying to you, if it's the doctor saying to you, go and see these people, is somebody that you already trust. Mm. So it's like building on that trust and they're sending you down there. And th that point about a barrier is 100%. I was thinking about this the other day. I had to go to a, just a local solicitor to get my identity checked because I wanted to do something and you have to have your identity checked. And it's just a local solicitor near where I live and I'd made the appointment. And then when I arrived at the premise, I couldn't actually find the front door or anything. It was, mm. it was actually quite forbidding. Yeah. And it struck me and I thought... Gosh, I'm a professor of law. I've done all this research. I know I can't find my way into this building. I actually can't find where the entrance is. It's not being helpful. It's not being welcoming. And I got to get through about three doors before I can get to it. And I thought, well, if I was someone sort of worrying about all sorts of yeah. things, there's no way you would go in there. So it isn't just that. So even if you're going to a free legal service, very often there are queues. Yeah. If you're trying to telephone, you've got long waits and everything. It isn't easy to access those services. So this kind of ease of access, I think, is quite an important point. So apart from being co-located with a GP surgery, how did you raise awareness about the risks associated with the bidirectional relation that you mentioned between legal problems and health problems? Well, as far as the GPs were concerned, initially you didn't need to because they've got a kind of grassroots understanding that a lot of the stuff that comes to them is either not medical at all and not something they can do something about, or it's medical, but they know that behind those symptoms is something that medicine isn't going to solve. Yeah. But the problem, and I think this is a real challenge with these kind of partnerships, and I've heard it when I've been to conferences in other jurisdictions, it's not just here. The problem is that doctors are busy and they're very much focused on what is the medical problem in front of me? What do I, you know, what can I do about this? What should I do? And so if you want a health justice partnership to flourish, you need to continually be reinforcing with the doctors the fact that you're there. You need to educate them about the kinds of problems that you deal with. Quite often, I mean, doctors don't have the same vocabulary as lawyers. And so they don't often use the same words that we do to describe things. And so you need to help them with understanding the range of issues that we can deal with. And sometimes they say, oh, really, can you do something about that? You say, uh, yes, we can. <laughs> so it's about educating them to some extent and then constantly reinforcing the fact that you're there. Another problem, which is probably kind of UK or England and Wales centric, is that because of the strains on the NHS, one of the things that we found was a constant turnover of doctors. Hmm. So... Yeah. You know, you can establish your relationship with, say, a group of doctors, but then they keep disappearing, new doctors come in, locums come in, and the locums don't know. And so you don't establish a partnership and that's it. 
So constant working at that relationship to keep that going. And I know that other people involved in these kinds of activities have said the same thing. That's something that I was going to ask of. Is there training provided for doctors when they're in medical school around this? Or is that something that you would Well, this be is such an interesting for? question. I'm so glad that you asked me that. <laughs> because I am in the process of working with Dr. Sophie Park, who deals with the MBBS here at UCL. And we've been talking and in fact are working on developing a module for year five students who are already doing their kind of rotation in yeah. GP practice. So they've been in GP practice and we're going to do a module for them on this kind of activity, on this kind of health justice partnership, helping them to think through the kinds of things they might see where they need to ask extra questions about what kinds of social, socio-legal problems might underlie the conditions they're seeing and then what they might do about providing advice or referrals on yeah. all those kinds of things. And NHS England has got a big programme of social prescribing going on, which is situating within general practice is what they call a link worker, a non-medical person who is situated within a GP practice or what will now be primary care networks, so the GPs will refer patients to the link workers and then the link workers will try to assess what non-medical non needs yeah. they have and then refer them out to other services. And one of the services that they can refer them to will be free legal services that currently yeah. exist. And so there's work going on to try and make sure that social welfare legal services are an essential part of social prescribing. Mm. In addition to providing legal services, you also conducted research at the clinic. Could yes. you tell us more about it? Well, when we set up the Health Justice Partnership, I said research will be integral to this because what we want to know is what difference does it make? Yeah, exactly. So we're setting this up because we believe that it will improve access to justice and we, we believe that the provision of advice may have health benefits, may lead to improved health and well-being, or maybe can reduce some of the disbenefits that they're experiencing as a result of being involved in legal problems. And so I applied to the Legal Education Foundation for funds to take on a health services researcher to work with me on developing research that would try to assess, if not the direct causal impact of our advice on health, but to look at associations between the provision of advice and any possible improvements in health and well-being. This involved about six months of getting NHS approval. That's a whole other <laughs> ethics approval. Joys of bureaucracy. That is a whole other story. And that's a whole other project that is waiting on my back shelf to deal with. Because the problem with ethics approval for anything to do with health is that everything is pushed into a clinical trials template. But actually, if what you're doing is a social science observational study on an intervention, a complex intervention that could have a range of outcomes or whatever, a clinical trials template is not a good template no. for doing that. It took us six months and a lot of help, but we managed to, we got ethical approval. So every patient who was referred to the Health Justice Partnership or who referred themselves to it would be consented. So we would talk to them first and would have sort of intake thing. And we would ask them if they were prepared to be involved in the research. We had very, very high uptake. And 
we did research so that we asked them for their own perceptions about their health and the extent to which they felt the problem was affecting their health or their sense of well-being. And we also administered validated health and well-being questionnaires and some other things. We then followed up patients over the course of a year to see, first of all, what had happened to the legal problem. You know, had we succeeded in sorting out whatever the legal problem was? And secondly, could we detect any beneficial impact? And working with my very good research assistant, Sarah Burden, we we haven't published this yet, but what we're showing is certainly that where we have sorted out legal problems, there is a discernible and significant impact Mm. on health and well-being. Now, that's not a random control trial. It doesn't even have a control sample, but it is a strong indicator for a pilot study of the potential benefits. And what's needed now is a much more robust evidence base for this. So there need to be much bigger studies involving kind of multi-sites and controls and all sorts of things in order to provide better evidence. Because I think there are some real policy implications of this. Anyway, off the back of the research, the Legal Education Foundation have funded me to develop a national strategy for health justice partnership. So that's looking across what's going on in England and Wales. Part of that was to undertake a scoping study of health justice partnership that I did with Sarah Bearden. And we published a report on that in December 2018, which showed that we identified over 350 forms of health justice partnership just in England and Wales. Right, wow. And that's probably an underestimate. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. I think the, the thing to stress about this is that it's very much a... In the way that we set up, it's a grassroots kind of experience-based movement. You find doctors or health professionals and free legal service providers coming together because they have this basic understanding that it provides a better service, particularly for disadvantaged and vulnerable groups. How established are those 350? So how far back do these How highly go? variable. So some go back a very long way, but one of the real problems, and which is why a national strategy and a really strong evidence base is needed, is that Although some of them go a long way back, one of the worst statistics we discovered was that something around 30 to 40% of those had no more than one or two years funding. So they're living from hand to mouth, Mm. shoestring, never knowing whether or not they can continue in the future. And so from that point of view, you know, people have managed to sustain things, but on the other hand, things come and go. There was another mapping study done in 2015 by the Low Commission that was looking at the removal of legal aid and the impact on not-for-profit legal services. And some of the places that they had identified had disappeared by 2017-18, but others had grown up. But they come and go depending on funding. So some of them are funded by local authorities, some are funded by clinical commissioning groups, some are funded by philanthropy, Mm. but the money, you can't depend on it, which makes it difficult to hire people and difficult to plan for the future. But also presumably it's difficult to then track the impact across the life course, which is what you would want to do. For exactly, policy. which is what you want to do. So if we're thinking about developing an evidence base, first of all, we need to be clear on getting a kind of 
evaluation framework for health justice partnership. What do we think? What are the outcomes that we think these partnerships can deliver? And so that we get things that are clearly measurable. But also, you're not going to get the kind of data you need from one site, precisely because they come and go and precisely because you need to track things. So we need quite a large piece of research this is part of my advocacy here. We need <laughs> someone to fund. Just giving her a platform. Yeah, it is. It's great. We need somebody to fund a really <laughs> solid piece of research. And I'd love to be involved in that. Uh, that will have to be across a number of sites and kind of over time. But I think there's so much growing interest in this that I think that somebody in the end is going to come up with some money. I see the kind of health justice agenda as being a transdisciplinary agenda. Yeah. There is a lot to be done bringing to bear social science, law and all the other kind of medical sciences and health services research and all those sorts of things. Are there any international examples that we can draw from in terms of maybe having more evidence to show or having a coherent strategy at national level or even regional level? I think there are two very good, pretty well developed national centres. So there's one in the USA which is the National Centre for Medical Legal Partnerships. They have a fantastically well-developed website with toolkits and materials. But interestingly, they themselves are concerned about the lack of high-quality, robust research projects Mm. in this field, demonstrating. So you can argue the benefits and, you know, like me, you can make kind of impassioned arguments and very credible arguments about the value of integrating services in this way, which people can understand. But actually, those are slightly running ahead of the evidence base. And we need a better evidence base. We need a better quantitative evidence base as well as qualitative work. Health Justice Australia was set up just only a few years ago, and it has made fantastic progress in that time, bringing together providers of services, looking at different models of health justice partnerships. There isn't just one model. There are lots of different models. It depends on local need, on service provision. Um, They've done a lot of work on that. They are beginning to do work on developing an evaluation framework, and I want to work very closely with them on it because I think it's really important to have people in different jurisdictions approaching the research in the same way, trying to measure the same kinds of outcomes to develop that kind of international body of evidence that I think we need that will support policy. Because policymakers will sometimes be persuaded by impassioned arguments, but they like lots of numbers and they want counterfactuals. They want to know what happens if you don't do this. And so it's a long job. But as I say, I've been funded to try and develop this national strategy for the UK, and that will involve trying to bring together providers of services, helping to share best practice and to develop an evaluation framework to try to launch or to support a large research project in this country that will measure outcomes and to do advocacy with the relevant government departments. Because again, I think this is something that calls for cross-departmental, interdepartmental cooperation. And actually, I will say that the Ministry of Justice has been talking to people in the Department of Health and NHS England about how they can feed into social prescribing developments. So there is activity going on at that policy level, which I think is absolutely fantastic. And it is a really novel development. Mm. Presumably, the UK is a slightly different case to anywhere else because of the NHS. It is. It's very different. When I'm trying to think about it, 
it's not totally different. There are bigger differences between the US and the UK than there are between the UK and Australia. So I find when I'm talking with Australians that in structural terms, we're working in a more similar sort of system than when I'm talking with people in the US, where for them, health justice often means just Mm. simply access to any healthcare. Now, sometimes we worry about kind of differential access to quality of care and things like that, Mm. but it isn't quite the same issue. How do you see the localization agenda fitting into this? So there's increasing push to move decision making away from Westminster or from central control towards, I'm thinking of the likes of Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership and Mm. those kinds of initiatives and agenda. Do you see that as a positive and something that health justice partnerships can work well in? Or do you think ultimately this has to come from a Department for Health policy initially? I think it needs both. Uh, I think it needs direct strategic direction from departmental level. So at national level, you need yeah. that strategic direction. But I think absolutely delivery on the ground needs to be done locally. And the reason for that is that local conditions are different. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So you have little local cultures, so the culture in one area will be different. I mean, and you can see that that's happened in any case. You know, why is it that some clinical commissioning groups have paid for health justice partnerships? Because they've seen for some reason there's something in their locality. Uh, we also know that there are certain areas that will have particular kinds of health problems. And so a, maybe a particular need for a certain kind of health justice partnership. So I think it needs broad strategic direction saying, you know, everybody should be thinking about yeah. this, but the delivery on the ground and that, you know, the way that the resources are going to be delivered on the ground, I think has to be done locally because of different local needs and different local conditions. Yeah. What next then? Well, aside from trying to develop this national strategy and sort of working at the policy level and also trying to support other people doing research in this field, another personal thing that I'm very interested in, and some people say that's because I'm getting old, is that I'm interested in the provision of legal advice for people who have a dementia diagnosis. Millen has, is a wonderful model for providing financial employment legal advice for people who have had a cancer diagnosis and that that has got itself kind of integrated into what are known as care pathways. So when you have that kind of diagnosis, you will automatically at some point or other be referred to this free service provided by Macmillan, which is an absolutely fantastic service. And I was thinking that there are lots of other conditions where you really do need to get some legal advice early on. And one of those, of course, is dementia. We don't have very good elder law developed in the UK as they do in the USA. But dementia doesn't only affect people in their later years. There are certain forms of rare dementia that will affect people actually at a very early stage in their life. And there's an extremely interesting unit in Queen's Square run by Professor Nick Fox, called the Dementia Research Institute, which provides a support group for people with dementia and their carers. We were contacted by them to see whether or not we might be able to provide legal services to some of the people who were attending these um, support groups. And um, we have just started a very small pilot whereby we are offering to provide advice to patients and or their carers about 
a range of issues that they may be concerned about where someone has one of these rare dementias. And I suppose longer term, I would think, you know, the great thing would be that anybody anywhere receiving a diagnosis of dementia would be told about or be referred to, if they existed, free legal services that could advise them about the kinds of legal issues that might arise. And of course, with something like dementia, where you will are likely to have declining capacity, it's important that you yeah. do that earlier rather than later. Of course, there are many other health conditions that raise all sorts of legal problems, but that happens to be something that I'm interested in and that we're doing a little pilot on. And of course, with an ageing society, it's going to become even more important. It is indeed. No, it really is. It is. is. Fascinating work. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the questions. Nice to have the chance to talk about it. (laughs) 